You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Louise Kennedy about Trespasses. Louise grew up near Belfast, and Trespasses is her first novel. She is also the author of a collection of short stories, The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac. She has written for The Guardian, The Irish Times, and BBC Radio 4. Before becoming a writer, she worked as a chef for almost 30 years. Louise lives in Ireland. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! Welcome, Louise. How are you today? I am very well. Indeed, Cindy. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing quite well myself, and I'm thrilled to pieces to speak with you because I loved Trespasses. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to hear. Well, what I usually do is ask the author to give a quick synopsis of the book for those that won't have read it yet. So could you do that for me? Yes. Uh, So Trespasses is a love story, uh, first and foremost, I guess. Um, It is set in um, a small town on the shores of Belfast Lock in 1975. And it's about a young Catholic teacher called Kushla Lavery, who teaches in a primary school by day. And by night, she helps out in her family's bar. uh, And it's there that she meets a man called Michael, who is older than her. And he's a Protestant and he's also married. So there are, um, I, I guess there are obstacles from, from the outset. What made you want to tell this story? And then how did you go about telling it? I suppose um, Kushla, as she uh, finally became uh, in this story, is is a character that I've maybe been working with on, you know, on and off for, for a few years. Um, uh, quite a few years ago, I uh, wrote a play, which, um, I mean, I'm very determined that it'll never see the light of day because it's not very good. But it did feature a young woman in her 20s in the north of Ireland who's working behind the bar. And um, I mean, I think in that play as well, uh, a man walks in and um, and there's an attraction. But, the, but that man is is probably, um, uh, he's probably a bit of a tragic figure, actually, really. Maybe Michael is the man that's in, in the novel too. And then in a short story that I wrote a few years ago, uh, again, uh, there's a young woman. in. so I think that Kushla was maybe a character that I was trying to find a, a place for. And really, the impetus for writing the novel probably came in March 2019 when I got a diagnosis for melanoma. And until then, I'd been writing short stories. I had, you know, the makings of a collection there. And I suppose 
finding out that that maybe I couldn't presume that I'd have a, a long life maybe really gave me the kick in the backside that I needed to, um, to you know, to force myself to write a novel because I couldn't presume that, you know, um, I could wander around for 20 years kind of playing at writing a novel. Um, so, so that probably really did, you know, provide a tremendous uh, impetus. Yeah, so I, I had around, I think, two, two and a half, three months off work and I managed to... I, I kind of made a deal with myself that I try and sit at the computer every day and write a thousand words. And that didn't happen every day, but it happened often enough that I had a, a draft ready, I suppose, within a, a, about three months. That is so fast. But I guess the melanoma kind of pushed you along. Yeah. And it also meant that, you know, I wasn't doing anything else. I think um, my family were kind of looking after me. So I, I, I was probably relieved of a lot of the things that I might have been normally doing around the house. I wasn't at work. I wasn't out and about, so um, it probably gave a lot of structure to my days. You know, I think that it was really, um, it's, it's really strange, actually. I think that um, I, I sort of can't uh, separate having cancer from, um, from from the novel because my cancer came back. And, um, you know, when I was working through the final edits, I was, uh, you know, there was a bit of uncertainty then as well. And um, I think it's really been a blessing um, in a way. You know, I, I think that it's worked both ways, you know, that, uh, that maybe having cancer has given me perspective on uh on the novel and that I just really see the writing as as work and then I think that having um a book out in the world has has been a, a hugely kind of positive distraction from from you know the treatment and stuff as well so it it's been kind of great like they weirdly complement each other well first I'm sorry that the cancer came back I know that had to be disheartening yeah, I mean, it was. I think um, I think I'm probably quite good at not really thinking about things, you know. So I'm really good at finding distractions. So I, I mostly deal with things by not dealing with them, and that's been working pretty well so far. <laughs> but the main thing is that um, uh, I'm on immunotherapy treatment that's really working uh, kind of insanely well. So um, yeah, I, I, I am feeling fairly positive about that. So ho- hopefully, it's all going to be okay. That's wonderful. I will be definitely sending you good thoughts. Oh, thank you. And I hear what you're saying on the book being a good distraction. I've lost both my parents in the last year. And if I'm not trying to focus on something like the podcast or something else, you know, related to my work, it's really easy to kind of, I don't know, let yourself get sucked into all the negativity. So having something positive to focus on, something else to do can be just really a wonderful distraction. I can. And I'm sorry, that's a lot of loss in one year. I'm sorry that happened to you. That's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. But, you know, I think it's been a crazy however many years for a lot of us. So Oh, it's been wild. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I do think having the distraction is really nice. And I just thought your book was fantastic. And I know a little bit about the Troubles, but not a lot. Why did you decide to set it during the Troubles? I think that maybe 1975. I mean, I, I, I just kind of, I, I, I had an idea that maybe, you know, I, I, it felt to me that I picked a random year, you know, in the Troubles and set it then. But, but I think that really on reflection, it was quite a significant year um, for me as a child because um, Cushley, you know, in her day job, uh, teaches a class of seven or eight-year-olds. And I uh, I was um, eight in 1975 and um, my family had a bar, um, the same way the Cushley family do. And in 1970, late 1973, um, a bomb was planted there. Um, it's like 150 pounds of explosives were packed into a beer keg and left by the entrance. And somebody spotted the bomb and it was diffused. Uh, about six months later, another bomb was planted and it, it did uh, detonate and it caused some damage. Nobody was injured, but um, I mean, it caused damage to the business. But also, I think that, you know, a second bomb so soon was a fairly clear message to my family that 
that people uh, wanted us um, out of business and, and, and out of the town. So my family began to leave and it meant that I went from uh, living within walking distance from all the relatives on my father's side uh, to half of them being gone. You know that my uncles and their young families who I used to walk around and see my cousins when they were little babies, they were gone. And then we left the north um, a, a few years later and moved down south. So um, yeah, I think that maybe that was a really significant um, year for me. That's possibly why why I said it then. Maybe there was also something in the fact that, um, you know, I, I have, um, I had another idea for a novel um, and it's, it's the one that I, I've begun to work on. But I, I, do, I do think that maybe my diagnosis um, gave the, the telling of that particular story, um, even though the characters in, in Trespasses are, are completely fictional. I, maybe I did want to um, to to leave a record of, of what it was like, um, you know, for people like us to live in that place at that time. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about because it's so foreign to me to have these type of things happening, like the bombs going off and people just being killed right and left and everything being so split and so splintered, Presbyterian, Catholics, like it's just such a difficult thing for me to understand not having lived through it. And I just think it must have been so incredibly stressful. You know, I, I, I think it definitely was very stressful. And I think, I mean, really on reflection, I think that my friends and I and my sisters and, you know, all the kids, that, uh, all the kids around me uh, were being brought up by nervous wrecks. I think that adults had to navigate a huge set of complications every day, really, you know, that it was, I, I, I think that people rarely freely said what was on their mind because they were afraid of offending somebody. Very often in those days as well, that of course, offending somebody could lead to something you know, pretty sinister. So I think there was that. I think as well, because we were um, in a minority community. So we were, you know, like uh, Kushla and her family, we were Catholics in a town that was about 90% Protestant. And that uh, meant that we had to probably conduct ourselves in a particular way, which is to not offend anybody, uh, not to draw attention to ourselves too much, even though it's difficult to do that when you have a bar and your name is above the door, you know, everybody knows who you are and what sort of background you're from. So I think all of those things were, they just were everyday things were really terribly stressful as well. You know, that if you walked into a supermarket, uh, someone would be at the door um, to, to look in your handbag for um, for weapons and explosives. The, there were metal detectors in use all the time. The security in Belfast city centre was really heavy. You know, there were these sort of metal uh, barriers and turnstiles and police and army standing around and men and women separated and being searched. It was really pretty crazy. But yet people went about their business and just, um, you know, found a way to live their lives. So, I mean, maybe that's something that I was interested in. It was just how um, how even when uh, the simplest things have become really complicated and uh, sinister, I suppose, um, that that people find a way to to live. Exactly. That they're able to keep going and live their lives, but you're dealing with this added layer, really added layers, everything you're describing, Mm -hmm. so foreign to what I think many people are used to dealing with. And you're talking about the armed guards, and that makes me think a little bit about 9-11. And I visited New York City about maybe six weeks, eight weeks after 9-11. And it was that same way around Times Square particularly, but but all over New York City, armed guards on every corner. And that stuck out to me and I still remember it. And what you're describing goes way beyond that, the metal detectors and checking handbags and all of that. Yeah, I think so. And do you know what I think though that I, that I would imagine because I wasn't there after 9-11, but I think that 
you know, if, if there's that sort of security, um, you, you know, if you walk through an airport in some place, you know, uh, like, I, I don't know if I, you know, I, I used to live in the Middle East and, uh, you know, you'd go to, say, go to Beirut airport and there'd be a lot of armed people around. But it, maybe it's been a few, quite a few years since there's been any kind of incident. So it doesn't feel like an imminent threat. But I would imagine that, you know, straight after 9-11, that probably... You know, you're looking at people with guns and also you're thinking, OK, this like horrendous thing happened here. There was a horrendous terror attack here recently. So I think that maybe that's where a lot of the fear comes from. It's that, you know, something has just happened and it might happen again. And, and that was kind of a constant thing for us. And, you know, I was speaking to someone, somebody from America um, a, a couple of weeks ago who said that um, some of the descriptions that I have in the book of uh, there's there's one scene in the book where um, there's a bomb scare uh, in the school and the children have to evacuate um, in, into the church uh, nearby. And, um, uh, you know, this this person I was talking to said that, that it really reminded them of the drills that children in the U.S. have to go through in, in schools now uh, because of gun violence. I think that's right. The active shooter drills, which always just hurt my heart. When I hear one of my kids has had to do that, I mean, it just, it really shatters me. But it is, I think you're exactly right. It did make me think of some of that. And it's just horrifying. And, you know, just to have Mm -hmm. as a parent or a child to be living through what you're describing during that time period. I can remember being in London in the 90s and I couldn't find a trash can on the street. And I finally asked somebody, why are there no trash cans on the street? And they're like, like, looked at me like I was crazy. They were like bomb threats. And I was like, what? Bomb threats? Absolutely. Yeah. And like there were no public public loos, when, public toilets when I was a, a child. So, um, yeah, um, which was fun. And a lot of, um, you know, if my parents took us anywhere, uh, you know, there were three girls in the back of the car. We were in like complete paroxysms of where's the toilet? <laughs> uh, but there just weren't any public loos for the same reason. Um, really crazy thing, stuff, you know, when, when very ordinary facilities. Uh, facilities uh, aren't, aren't available because of that sort of thing. So, you know, at every level, even the tiny little, you know, the tiniest little detail like that, you know, if you add it all up, it, it really does make for quite a lot of stress and quite a, an abnormal way of living. Absolutely. Before you even get to what you were describing of having to kind of monitor yourself, lay low, be careful what you say, there were so many reprisals, you know, it just kind of builds on itself. Yeah, that's it. And that was, um, I mean, that was definitely happening. Um, they call them tit for tat killing. So, um, you know, maybe soldiers will be killed. And then, you know, a couple of days later, um, you know, maybe a, a couple of Catholic workers might have been shot by loyalist paramilitaries who would say that that was in reprisal for, you know, that, that attack. And it would just go on and on and on. And it went on and on like that for years, for many years. Definitely. Well, shifting gears from that, one of the things that I found interesting was that you don't use quotation marks. And I'm seeing that a little bit more in writing. So can we talk about that? Okay. So, uh, yeah, this is funny because I do that just because I think that I'm not a terribly tidy person in uh, the rest of my life. But I I do try and apply quite a bit of discipline when I'm writing. I I, I think it's just that I quite like um, how it looks on the page to not have any. And also, I think it demands um, quite a bit of, you know, it it does demand a bit of the writer because you do have to um, apply quite a bit of discipline and and um, and just to make it, you know, make sure that it's very clear who's speaking. And yeah, I, and then I think I've realised that some people don't love that. So I hope you didn't find it really irritating. Um, and I hope you you knew who was speaking. But yeah, I don't know. I, maybe some. I I think some other writers might do that these days. I think does Sally Rooney do? She might. Did somebody tell me that Sally Rooney does that? She does, and Paulette Giles did it in the News of the World. 
So yes, no, I think it's becoming more common. It doesn't bother me in the slightest. In fact, I don't think I even noticed it until about three quarters of the way through the book. But it's a conversation I've had repeatedly with readers, sometimes other authors. And so I'm always just fascinated to hear how that came about and kind of a glimpse into why there are, are not present in your writing. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it's just that I, I think I kind of like how um, it looks on the page. It makes the pages look quite clean. And I think also in some way it has a way of, I mean, I was trying to keep, it's like uh, Trespasses is written in the third person in the past tense, but also I wanted to be, it, I wanted it to be really, really close to Kushla's point of view. And I think that by not having quotation marks, I hope that it beds the dialogue um, a bit more deeply down into the text and, and, and makes it feel very close, you know, especially to, to Kushla's voice. I hope it has that effect. Well, and I also think sometimes it's almost what they're thinking versus what they're saying. I mean, you know, it's what they're saying, but in terms of telling the story, sometimes it just kind of gave me that impression. Yes, exactly. That's it. And and, and that can be kind of interesting as well, you know, because um, it just with playing with voice and stuff and how, how um, you know, how to make even the thoughts sound as if they're being spoken in a person's voice. Yes, yeah, so all of that's kind of interesting. It's kind of fun to do. It definitely is. Well, let's talk a little bit about the title and the cover. I love the cover. I understand it's a painting. I saw that on the back flap of the book. Do you just love it? I completely love it. Um, in fact, I think I love it even more every time I look at it. It's gorgeous. And also, I'm a little bit jealous because a lot of the people I've spoken with have uh, have been flashing at me finished copies of the book. So at the moment, I still have an ARC and I'm uh, really deranged to get my hands on the lovely hard copy because they look beautiful from a distance. Oh, they are beautiful. I can't believe that. Yes, I am looking at a hard copy. And you need one. <laughs> I need one. I think they're on the way, uh, but I'm very excited. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's just been an absolute dream to deal with um, with Becky Salatin and the others in in Riverhead. I just think they they've done just such a, an amazing job at um, at, at publishing this book. I, I couldn't have asked for more. And how about the title "Trespasses"? Was that the title you came up with from the beginning, or how did that come about? No, it wasn't the title from the beginning. Um, but um, so so the working title for the book, and it was only ever a working title, was uh, when I moved to the sky. And um, you know, you've read Trespasses and know that you know that it's uh, divided into five sections, and they each have a, each section has a name, and one of them is called uh, When I Moved to the Sky. So I so it, it it's still there in in some form. I think it's kind of lovely, but also it's maybe a little bit whimsical and. I think it, it, my editor in the UK and um, and uh, the, the, my editor in, in the US felt that, you know, there, there was a, a, a word out there somewhere that was much stronger that would say more about the book. And um, yeah, so I come up with trespasses. I suppose there are a few reasons for that. You know, I, I, I certainly first heard the word trespasses when I was a small child and I learned uh, the, the Lord's Prayer. And, um, you know, it, it suggests uh, sin and it's a word that isn't um, a, a wrongdoing, but it's a word that um, that certainly, in my experience, it, w- it wasn't used in, in that context elsewhere. You know, people didn't use it in normal speech, so it's kind of a memorable word from that point of view. But uh, but also, I hope um, it works to convey, you know, other lines being crossed. Maybe there are moral lines being crossed. You know, Kushla is in a relationship with a with, with a, a married man. I guess this sort of sexual relationship that she has is probably at odds with her Catholic upbringing and. You know, there uh, there are class lines being crossed, there are uh, religious, political lines being crossed. And then, you know, there's the kind of physical trespassing of Kushla leaving, you know, the small town that she's in, you know, to go to Belfast to meet this man. So, yeah, I, I hope that the word, um, uh, uh, the title operates on, on a few levels. 
I think it definitely does. And that's so interesting that you say that about the Lord's Prayer, because that's the first thing I always think when I see the word trespasses as well. Yes. But I definitely think it works on various levels for your book. Oh, great. I'm delighted. That's great to hear. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? Okay, so this year um, I have read, um, it's a nonfiction book by an Irish uh, journalist. Her name is Sally Hayden. And um, it has already won a couple of um, uh, prizes. And I think that that hasn't finished yet. My fourth time we drowned. And Sally's a a journalist. And this book is about uh, the experience of uh, people leaving um, uh, Africa um, for for a new life in Europe and about those horrendous journeys they make across the the very rough Mediterranean Sea uh, in the winter um, and how really it's a form of human trafficking. And I suppose it's also about um, about the um, the really extraordinary and cruel um, uh, you know extent uh, to which Europe will go to keep them out. Um, but I just think the, the the title would put the heart across you. So that's that's um, a, a book that's been um, really um, really um, significant to me in the last while. Um, also, there is a book that was published earlier this year by a writer who's also from the north of Ireland called Lucy Caldwell. It's published by Faber in the UK, and it's called These Days. And it's a really beautiful, uh, beautifully written uh, book set in Belfast in 1941 during uh, the Blitz, you know, the, 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 the German bombing. So Belfast really only experienced uh, bombing for, um, for a very short time. Um, but there were two nights that were really, um, you know, extremely heavy. And um, uh, But this is a, just a beautiful book. So, so those would be my two. My two favorites at the moment. It changes all the time. Well, I get that. Just depends on what you get asked, right? Exactly. I'm not even sure to show my complete ignorance that I knew that Belfast had been bombed at all. I need to track that book down because I really, really like World War II stories. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a really beautiful book, actually. So, yeah, Belfast was. Um, people in the UK don't even know that Belfast was bombed. Um, it was bombed only a few different nights. But uh, the, w- the one particular night, it was the worst single bombing in the entire Blitz outside of London. Like worse than Coventry, worse than Liverpool or any of those places. Um, I think Belfast lost something like um, 20% of its housing stock in one night. And obviously, if it's housing stock, then uh, many lives uh, were were lost. And the place was really devastated for for quite a long time. Oh, wow. Truly, I had no idea. And I think that's one of those interesting things about World War II is there are just so many stories to be told and so many different things happening in so many different countries. And so in terms of trying to make sure you learn it all, well, I'm going to definitely track that book down. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. And I think, um, but, you know, because she, she's not trying to do anything sort of grandly political um, there, but it's just, um, it's um, the, the book is the story of two of, of two sisters, two young women. It, it's, it takes place over, the story unfolds over sort of two or three nights. And um, yeah, it's just beautiful. And you really feel that you're walking the streets um, of a burning Belfast with them. It's incredible. Well, in those types of books, a strong sense of place, which is what I really liked about your book as well are my favorites, where you truly feel like you have been transported to that location. Yeah, I love that too. And Lucy's brilliant at it. I, I think there's probably, uh, there, there, there are very few other writers who can, who can write a book in a city like her. She's amazing. Well, I felt like you had transported me to 1970s Belfast. So I totally get that and I love it. Oh, thank you so much. Honestly, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Louise, for taking the time to talk to me today and coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Oh, thank you, Cindy, for having me. Honestly, it's been lovely. Thank you. History is complicated. 
The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.